Father, we're, we're here meeting this morning because you have caused those of us who are your children, those of us who worship Christ as our Lord, our Savior, and our King, you have caused us to be born again. Like those dead, dry bones, you have made us alive. You've made us your children. And Lord, you make us your children. You give us new hearts. You give us new life. And you feed us. So Lord, we desperately need to be fed by you. We desperately need your word. Father, there's every chance that here this morning are people who haven't fed on your word in a while. That Lord, we, we feed on so many other things. We are fed by our culture and by the world. We are fed so many other things, and, and Lord, we eat them joyfully. We set aside time to eat those things, and we look forward to them. Lord, we binge on that food. And Father, I pray that we would feed from your word. We begin in life as your children, as infants, and eating milk, and we want to move up to the meat, Lord. And so I pray that as we take time every week here to study a passage together, that, Lord, we are also desiring to grow, to eat more and more of your precious food that you give to us, that we would grow stronger in Christ, that we would grow, Lord, just more healthy in Christ. And so as we look at this passage today, Lord, thinking of how you are the one who causes us to be born again by the power of your Spirit, Lord, I pray that we would feed regularly, that we would just be, Lord, just encouraged to come to your Word in our own lives. We need it. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So turn, if you would, in your Bibles to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. This morning we're going to begin looking at this conversation here between Jesus and Nicodemus. As you're turning there, I just want to remind you of something that we read a few weeks ago as we were going through the book of John. And as we were going through, and as right at the very beginning when we were looking in the prologue, we saw the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And so we, right from the beginning, we said that, that John starts off this on the highest note possible. He's going to tell you the story about the Word of God. He, he, he's not going to start off by teasing. He's, no, this is the Word who was there at creation. And so he's coming to his own, and his own did not receive him. And then he begins telling us the story of Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God. We see him. There he is. This is the Word. So what we're looking at today is we're looking at the story of Jesus meeting with a man of the Pharisees, a ruler of the Jews. And we have to have in our minds what John said at the very beginning of the letter when he said, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. That should be on our minds because here we, we see Jesus having a conversation with one of the rulers of the Jews, one of the people who represents the group 
that, that came to John the Baptist and said, who are you and what are you doing here? And didn't understand when John the Baptist said that the Christ was coming. He's a representative of the group who came to Jesus in the temple and said, on what, the, what authority? Do you remember? He said, what, by what sign do you do these things? So, then, if you remember, John told us that Jesus knows what is in man. Unlike all of us, we looked at this last week, unlike all of us, we, th- we sometimes can think that we can read people and know what's in them, but the majority of the time we're actually wrong. Jesus knows what is in man because he is the Word. All of that sets up for us to finally go, oh, okay, so here's a conversation between the Word of God. Here's a conversation between the Lamb of God, the one who knows what is in man, and one of these rulers of the Jews. It's a really popular passage. Obviously, it has some really popular verses in this passage that we're going to be looking at over the next several weeks. There's a really fun little phrase in here called born again. And that's what I want you guys to think about this morning. That's what our discussion questions uh, for you guys to talk about after, uh, after the service, over lunch, whatever. Uh, it's on this, this, this phrase, born again. But I want to give you a heads up, there's a lot we're not going to talk about this morning. Um, I mean, there's so much to be said here. So we're going to zero in. I'm going to start in chapter 2, verse 23, though. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, For he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Okay. First off, let me just clear up a couple of things about this story, because I'm sure that some of you have heard this story preached. I I sat down um, and thought about this, and I'm pretty sure I've heard six or seven sermons on this passage, and and this story over my life. I can still hear Billy Graham actually saying, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound. Every time I read that, I actually can't help but in my mind read that in Billy Graham's voice. So I've heard this a lot, and so there's a couple of things I want to clear up. If you're new to the story, this can also be helpful. One, I just want us to to, to note here that Jesus, uh, this man came to Jesus by night. This man came to Jesus by night. You know, we, we've all read stories, right? We've all read novels. Or if, or if you're not a novel reader, we've all watched movies. We know that nighttime is when secret things happen. Spies come out at night. Boogeymen are out at night. 
We know that all the good little who's down in Whoville are tucked in their beds at night. Because who's up? The Grinch. With his heart two sizes too small. He's up doing business. He's up to no good at night. So much has been made of the fact that this story took place at night. And, and there's three actual, there's, there's different schools of thought on what it means that this took place at night. School one says that Nicodemus was ashamed to come to Jesus. And he didn't want his Pharisee friends to know that he was interested in Jesus. So there is a sense of the clandestine here. We're seeing cracks maybe in the system of the Pharisees. Maybe. But of course, the Pharisees are interested in Jesus in the daytime, too. Nicodemus is going to publicly speak on Jesus' behalf soon. So maybe. School 2 says that John is speaking symbolically here, because John certainly does that. We've seen it already numerous times. I actually find this idea a little compelling. Jesus is going to tell Nicodemus that those who love the light come to it instead of loving the darkness. There's a, there's a bit of a play on words that's going to happen later in this conversation. Jesus is telling the man who came to him in the darkness of night that those who will know God are those who seek him in the light. So there is a little bit of a play on words there. He's like, what are you doing, Nicodemus? Seeking out the light of the world in the, the dark of night? So... Maybe there's some symbolism there that John is saying. The, the irony of, of the Pharisee and ruler of the Jews who should stand for righteousness and light is seeking out the light of the world in the middle of the night. John certainly does things like that, so that's possible as well. School 3 says, come on, you're overthinking it. Nicodemus is a busy guy. Jesus is a busy guy. Like, they're going all day long. Busy people like that, they don't have a whole lot of time. So at the end of the day, when all the good little who's are are tucked in their beds, Nicodemus has time finally to meet with Jesus and have a conversation. I mention this, and I bring this up because we could get distracted by things like this in the story. And, and, and I want to clear it away because so often it's things like that that end up taking a lot of our, our bandwidth, a lot of our brain power, and we end up missing what the main point of a text actually is. I can tell you one thing for sure about why Nicodemus came at night. John tells us that he came at night because Nicodemus came at night. So, there's that. But when he comes, matters far less than what happens when he's there. And that's what we want to focus on. We just read that Jesus was doing these signs and people were believing in him, but Jesus did not trust them. Why didn't he trust them? He didn't trust them because he, he knew all people which is a very scary statement that can only be applied to God. He knew their hearts. He knew their minds. He knew their very natures. There's nothing within our hearts that can be hidden from this man, Jesus. There's nothing. You and I love to hide things. There's nothing that we have ever actually hidden from the Lord, which is both terrifying because the Lord will judge all people, and it's also extremely comforting to those whom He loves because He saw all of you. And then he loved you and called you and made you his. So take this man, Nicodemus. That's almost how you could read this story. You could read this as, for he himself knew what was in man. He did not entrust himself to them because he himself knew what was in man. 
take this man Nicodemus. When he comes, Jesus knows what is in him. Everything that Jesus says here is exactly, perfectly said in response to Nicodemus, which is helpful for us to know because what he says to Nicodemus on the surface doesn't make sense. So look at what Nicodemus says when he sits down with Jesus. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So there it is. Nicodemus, he sees the signs, and Nicodemus is not a stupid man. He, he knows a little bit of what he's seeing here. So you could take this as an encouraging way, actually, for the, the conversation to start. He's making some common ground with Jesus. He's saying, he's, he's saying to Jesus, he's saying, as a Pharisee, I see the truth that you are doing something from God. He's very respectful. He calls him rabbi. He says, and I see these signs that you're doing. And so we're tracking with him, right? I mean, Jesus has done amazing signs already. And so we might, we might breathe a sigh of relief. We might think, oh, here's a Jew that gets it. And then Jesus responds to what Nicodemus says, and that's when the conversation gets weird. Nicodemus says, I, I see what you're doing here. He makes a statement. He wants to go in one direction with the conversation. But Jesus is not interested in small talk here. Jesus is not interested in the surface-level conversation. John says Jesus answered him. He replied to him. Jesus, Nicodemus didn't ask a question. He made a statement. Jesus, Jesus responded. He, he, he didn't, I mean, Nicodemus didn't really say anything more than the blindingly obvious. I, I mean, when, when, when we meet somebody for the first time, what, what are the kind of things we do? We go, so so what, what do you do for a living? Where do you live? I mean, let's, let's just nail down some basic facts between us, you know, so that we can, we can sort of start this conversation. We're going to grease the wheels of our conversation with just some blindingly obvious, it's raining today. Yep, sure is. Right? I mean, this is, this is, we start with just these things. Jesus cuts right to the point. The first thing we want to answer today is what does it mean to be born again? What does it mean to be born again? Of the two men who are talking here, one of them has descended from heaven. One of them knows all people, knows what is in man. Nicodemus may want to talk about one thing. Nicodemus probably here wants to talk about the signs. And he wants to say, okay, what are these signs? What do they portend? Who are you in this, this mix of, you know, we're, we're waiting for the Messiah. You know, we're, we, we already saw them coming and saying, you know, to John the Baptist, are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Are, are you the Christ? So, so Nicodemus, he's trying to categorize Jesus. He's trying to, to figure out who is this guy who does these signs. Just like, you know, we may want to wax on about the symbolism of nighttime. But Jesus wants you to hear this point. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We immediately understand one thing here. Nicodemus says, I see your signs and know who you are. Jesus, in his response, is saying, you don't see what's happening. You don't understand yet what's going on here. Now, I don't, I don't want to sell Nicodemus short. These Pharisees knew Scripture. They knew the Old Testament better than probably any of us in here. They knew Scripture 
Nicodemus would have been a respected man. He was a ruler of the Jews. I think we're to understand that if anybody could see the signs and understand the signs, it would be a man like Nicodemus. He's perfectly positioned to understand this. But Jesus turns the whole conversation on its head. He knows what's in Nicodemus. He knows what needs to be discussed here. Nicodemus makes clear he's got no clue what Jesus is talking about. This is not where he expected to go. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter into the womb a second time and be born? He's trying to understand. In the same way the Jews were trying to understand when they said, you're going to tear this temple down and in three days you're going to build it back up. This temple took 46 years to get where it is right now. And they didn't understand in that moment what Jesus was talking about. And Nicodemus here doesn't understand the direction that Jesus has taken this conversation in. I don't think that Nicodemus is sitting there going, wow, did he really, like, does he really expect us to, to get into our mother's womb again? This is just a way of him saying, what are you talking about? That makes no sense. It's impossible. We can't do that. And so Jesus responds. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. So how do we understand this statement, born again? To get there, we have to ask another question first. How would Nicodemus have understood this conversation? After all, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's a ruler of the Jews. You might ask, why did Jesus decide to use the imagery of birth, uh, of being born by the Spirit and not by the flesh? Why would he have used that imagery with a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, a man like Nicodemus? He was born a Jew. He would have been circumcised as a Jew. He is, by birth, one of God's chosen people. In other words... The first birth that Nicodemus had carried, in his mind, enough weight. The first birth that he had, in his mind, was enough of a birth. He was born as a Jew. What what need does Nicodemus have to be born again? He's not some Gentile. He's He's not somebody who was born outside the covenant people of the Lord like you and me. Now, if if he were a Gentile, if he were born outside the covenant, this might make a little bit more sense. Then maybe it's, it's symbolic language for becoming a proselyte of the Jewish faith, yeah? I mean, that would make sense. It would make sense to Nicodemus to say, you know, one of those people has to be born again. But if anyone needed to be born again in order to enter into God's kingdom, it would not be a Jew, and it certainly wouldn't be, in Nicodemus' mind, a Pharisee. No. I mean, it was a common understanding at the time that all Jews were born into the kingdom. They were born into the covenant of God. They had the promises. They had David. They had David the king. They had the son of David. These all belonged to the Jews. 
And yet, Jesus has the audacity to tell a Pharisee of the Jews, you have to have another birth. The implication is your first birth was not enough. It's insulting. I want you to see that. This flies in the face of everything that Nicodemus would have believed about himself as both a Jew and a Pharisee, that he would need to be born again, that his first birth wasn't sufficient to enter into God's kingdom. That's where Jesus is going here. Perhaps this is one reason why his own did not receive him. Jesus comes with hard truths, doesn't he? Jesus doesn't come and go, hey, everything about you is okay and I can just make it better. Does he? When Jesus comes, he comes to tear down the pride that's built up in our hearts. The arrogance that's built up in our hearts. Jesus comes to tear us down so that he can remake us in his own image, pure and holy, perfect peace, perfect righteousness. So he comes to a Jew, a ruler of the Jews, with a hard truth. Your first birth is not enough. There's three things I want you to see about this new birth. One, what I just said. Our natural birth is not enough. Our natural birth is not enough. That which is born of flesh is flesh. It doesn't matter if you were born a Jew. It doesn't matter if you were born a Greek. It doesn't matter if you were born something else entirely. The word for flesh is used throughout the New Testament to refer to our nature, our fleshly sinful nature. A sinner, in other words, a sinner, any sinner, makes another sinner. Well, I guess it would be any two sinners. Two wrongs don't make a right. I just thought of that. That was bad. That was bad. I'm sorry. Two sinners don't make another sinner. This is what happens when a baby is born. I loved all my children when they were born. I still love them now. (laughs) But I loved them all when they were born. But I wasn't under any illusions. Their mom and their dad are horrible sinners by birth. Listen to Job. Job explains this. Job says, Man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. And do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me into judgment with you? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. Our first birth is not enough. Our first birth is enough to condemn us no matter how great our first birth is, no matter who we were born to, no matter where we were born at, no matter what we were born, our first birth is not enough. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Nicodemus, it doesn't matter that you were born into the covenant people of God. It doesn't matter that you were circumcised. You're missing something that is absolutely essential. It doesn't matter who you are. More importantly, it doesn't matter who your parents are. You need something better than that. You know, one of the most hideous lies that I think is proclaimed today all over everywhere is that God loves you just the way that you are. 
I'm not denying that God loves you. And there is no denying that God loved His people and He is so loving that He sought out His children while they were enemies of His. And it is certainly true that God is so loving that He loved the world in this way. He sent His only begotten Son. But loving us just the way that we are, no, He is more loving than that actually. The God that just loves you the way that you are is a God that sounds like He's, just, he's happy to overlook the things that you do. He's happy to accept all the things that you do and all the things that you think and all the things that you are. That God feels good in one sense, doesn't He? That God is the God who pats you on your head and goes, aren't you just so precious? But God's love is actually so much better than that because we need something better than that. We need something so much better than that. It's like the image of, of, of a doctor when you have a major heart issue. And he says, I, I, I love you. We'll just, we'll just leave you the way you are. You're, just, you're great the way you are. That's not love, is it? You're going to die. But the doctor who says, you know what? I'm actually going to crack open your chest, I'm going to cut you wide open and like flay you back and I'm going to take some really sharp knives and tools. I'm just like going to start cutting the heck out of you. That doctor, that's more how God is. It hurts. It hurts for you and I to face the truth that our first birth is not enough. That there are things that have to be rooted out of us. That have to be put to death. God's love is so much better. God loves what He is making you into. We don't hate our sin enough today because we don't see that God is a, is a God of love and God also hates sin. God hates wicked, wickedness. God hates the wicked. Psalm 11 says He pours fire and, and sulfur upon their heads. He hates lying. He hates jealousy. He hates anger. He's furious against it. He'll crush it into death. He hates sin. And yet, if you, were, you and I were to look into our hearts the way that Jesus looks into our hearts, what would He see there? He would see lying. He would see wickedness. He would see anger. He would see bitterness. He would see sin. And He does. And He loves us enough to do something about that. So this is why the new birth is so necessary, because the first one is damning. Our natural birth is not enough. The second thing I want you to notice about this birth that He's talking about is that this birth is the only entrance into the kingdom of God. There is no other way. This birth is the only entrance. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So, so much can be said about this. There's so many disagreements over these words. Is he contrasting here natural birth and spiritual birth with these two words, water and spirit? 
I don't think so. I, I think when you read this, th- these two words are meant to be read together, not as contrasting each other. These two words are talking about the same birth. It's a birth of water and the Spirit together. Is he talking about baptism in reference to the water? Again, I, I don't think so. Christian baptism doesn't exist yet when Jesus and Nicodemus are talking. But Jesus clearly thinks that Nicodemus should understand what he's referring to here. He's going to say right after this, he's going to say, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Roman Catholics and others can use this passage to argue for baptizing infants in order to grant them salvation. But it's simply not there. The fact that Jesus expects Nicodemus as the teacher of Israel to understand what he's saying should lead us to a conclusion. The idea of water and spirit being combined in God's plan of salvation can be found in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 44, verses 2 through 5. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you, Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob and another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. You see, they're both water and the spirit mentioned in the future promise of salvation. Of course, an even better one comes in Ezekiel. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Nicodemus, my friend, You need to be cleansed. You need to be sanctified. Being born a Jew is not going to help you. It's right there in your own scriptures. Jesus is sitting here telling Nicodemus that the time has come. Clean water is about to fall. The Spirit is about to be poured out on God's people and they will be made new. God's love is about to be poured out in this new birth. Doesn't Paul say that in Romans 5? God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God doesn't love us just the way that we are. God loves us enough to make us something better, to cleanse us, to sanctify us, to clean us from all of our uncleannesses by sprinkling clean water on us, and then by putting the Spirit in us. I think Jesus here is referencing both of these passages in Isaiah and Ezekiel. This is what God has promised. To cleanse, to purify, to sanctify. But does Nicodemus want that? I'm not sure that he does. It seems like Nicodemus' attitude is one that says, why would I need to do that? Why would I need to do that when this is who I am and I've done all this? And Nicodemus, he's a grown man. He's not a baby. He's devoted his life to the law of God. He was born a Jew and now he's given his life to the effort of fulfilling the demands that have been placed on him. Pride, 
pride, his, his own personal pride demands here that, that he be insulted by this statement of Jesus. Everything that you've done doesn't matter. I've had conversations with, before with people who say something along these lines. I've lived a good life. I have, I have worked so hard to try and make sure that I've done more good than bad with my time. I've not been that bad. I look around and I see other people and it makes me feel like I've got some hope because I'm not that bad. What Jesus did here, he may as well have just swept that argument off the table. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you've done more good than bad. It doesn't matter how much good you have done. Because again, your first birth condemned you because you were born in sin. The sin that you have done has condemned you. You can't cleanse yourself of that. Everything that you've done doesn't matter. It's not going to get you into the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, everything you are and everything that you have done, it doesn't matter. Unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, they cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless one has been cleansed and sanctified by God, and unless one has had God's Spirit given to them, unless that has happened... You're not entering into the kingdom of God. Which leads to the third and the last thing here. Our new birth, then, is not of our doing, but of God. Our new birth is not of our doing, but of God. If Nicodemus doesn't apply, as readers, knowing who Nicodemus is, knowing the, the, the Old Testament world, knowing the, the, the time of Jesus, if Nicodemus doesn't apply and he can't get into the kingdom of God as he is, you and I could never get into the kingdom of God. He's got the best chance out of anybody to do it. You and I, if he doesn't have a chance, none, we, we have no chance on our own. There's nothing we can do. There's no work that we can do to get ourselves into the kingdom of God. So here I'm going to make an incredibly obvious statement in just a minute, but before that I, I want to say that in, in a number of the sermons that you hear on this particular passage, the preacher somehow manages to integrate a fairly graphic dis description of the birth process to drive home a point. I'm not going to do that to you guys. Been there, done that four times now. We don't need to dwell on the details. I will say this, though. Here's the thing about having a baby. We all know it. There's really only one person who's doing all the work. Dads, am I right? <laughs> you guys ever sat on one of those hospital couches? The baby's not giving birth. The baby is being born. The mom is the one that's in labor doing the work. 
So when we get to this parallel, the, the obvious question is, if you didn't do anything in your first birth, why would you think that you would be the one who caused your second birth? I think Jesus is being very clear here. This goes back to what we said earlier. All these people, Nicodemus included, they saw these signs, but they couldn't understand what they were seeing. There was something that they lacked. They lacked the new birth. They lacked the spiritual birth. They lacked the power of the Holy Spirit. The coming of the Holy Spirit is an, is an undercurrent to John's whole gospel. When you see that, I want you, if you would, this week, sit down and read the gospel of John, all in one sitting. Set it, set it. It's not, it doesn't take that long. You can do it in a cup of coffee. And read it thinking this, the undercurrent to the whole gospel of John is the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's fascinating to, to read it and see that. The Holy Spirit is ultimately what is going to allow the disciples to recall what they had been taught. The Holy Spirit is ultimately the one who is going to convict us of our sin. If you are convicted of your sin, even that is not your own doing. John says it's the work of the Spirit. In order to fully see God, in order to truly recognize why you should love the light of the world, you should love the light of Christ, the, the Word of God, in order to understand why you should prefer the Lamb of God over the world, you need God to cleanse you and to cause you to be born again. In John chapter 14, Jesus tells His disciples, He's going to ask the Father, and the Father will send the Holy Spirit. Even the Spirit of truth, He says, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You and I can't control our births, either one of them. There's another way that you can interpret born again in this passage, and it's worth noting. You could just as easily translate this, instead of born again, you could easily translate this born from above. And both of those ideas may actually be present here. After all, John said in John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Those who received him were born of God, not flesh and blood. Nicodemus, my friend, this is what Jesus is telling you. He's telling you what he's going to do. He's saying... he. He's here to fulfill the promises of Isaiah and Ezekiel. Clean water is about to fall. Sins are about to be sanctified. The dry bones, the dead, dry sinners are about to be made alive. The Spirit is about to move. Jesus is here to do all of this. He's going to do that. You can't control Jesus. You can't control God the Father. Nicodemus couldn't even control this conversation. Remember? He, he said, I see the signs, and then Jesus says, this is actually what we're talking about, Nicodemus. <laughs> Not that. Because he knows what is in man. 
You can't control the Holy Spirit either. Jesus tells us that. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You cannot grasp the wind. You cannot call the wind up. It blows where it will. So to a Jew, a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, he has to, he has to humble himself. He has to see that he does not have the worthiness to come into the kingdom. That's the parallel for you and I. Kids, there's, a, there, there's something here for you. Being, being born in a Christian family, having, having parents who are Christians, that's not enough. Growing up in the church is not enough. Kids, we need more than that. We need Jesus ourselves. All of us may need to hear that, honestly. You may be relying on the fact that you grew up in church. You may be relying on the fact that your parents were Christians. You may be relying on the fact that that you were born where you were born, to who you were born, how you were born. We We need to realize if Nicodemus cannot get into the kingdom of God unless he is born again by water and the word, we've got no hope. But do we have hope? Of course we do. That's the whole point of this. The whole point of this is that we have to understand first and foremost, we can't get there by ourselves. You can't know God by yourself that way. You don't have the right to be in God's kingdom. You don't have the right to come to Him and call Him your Father. You don't have the right to to, to come and, and to feed on the Word. You don't have the right to cast your cares on the Lord. You don't have the right just because you were born to do that. You don't have the right just because you've done a lot of great things to do that. We have to recognize that. That that has to humble us. That has to break us. We have to feel that you are hopeless on your own. Because the hope is, the whole point we're doing this, the whole point we're here, the whole point we're reading the Gospel of John, is that Jesus is here to do what you and I could never do. It's not like Jesus is showing up to go, I'm just here, guys, to tell you none of you can come into the kingdom of God. All right, I'm out of here. I'm heading back to the kingdom of God. Just so long as you all understand, you can't be there. You know, sometimes you might feel that from people. That my whole, my whole purpose in, in here is just to tell you, you don't belong in the kingdom of God. You're not worthy. You're a wretch. You're a failure. Nothing you can do can get you in the kingdom of God. All right, I got to head out. Take care. But that's not what Jesus is doing. The whole thing that that, that he's here for is to bring us into the kingdom of God. And what makes that so precious is we don't deserve to be there. He came to bring us there, though. It's not that Jesus looks into our hearts and sees the sin and the condemnation of a first birth and walks away from us. He's come to bring us somewhere we couldn't go by ourselves. We're here worshiping Jesus because we could never do this if He did not cleanse us, if He did not give us His Spirit. 
The precious truth this morning is the sooner that you can humble yourself, the sooner that, that, that you can realize like Nicodemus, you have no rights before God. The sooner you realize that Jesus came to bring us into the kingdom. He wasn't talking about the second birth just to talk about it. He was talking about the second birth because he was intending on bringing it. He wants you and I to understand how God makes us his children. What are you trusting in? Where are you looking for your hope? It's in Jesus. He has made a way. He intends to bring about the second birth. He intends to raise dead people to life by the Spirit. So rejoice, Christian. God has worked in you. That should provide us assurance too, shouldn't it? In the same way that we had so much assurance last week when we thought about how Jesus knows what is in us, which means he knew full well what he was doing when he died for us. He knew the pettiness and the wretchedness. He knew the the weakness and he died for us. In the same way, Jesus knows that we don't deserve to be in the kingdom. And he has come to make a way. We're about to sing, we will feast in the house of Zion. If you sing that, and that's the truth, that you will feast in the house of Zion, it's because God brought you through the second birth. He convicted you of your sin. Are you being convicted? Is the Spirit working? Are you being called by Jesus? It's God working to bring us to Himself. We can sing, we'll feast in the house of Zion because we can have certainty God did it. It's not our righteousness, it's Christ's righteousness we're depending on. It's not our cleanness, it's Christ's cleanness that we're depending on. We will feast in the house of Zion because of Jesus. That's the beauty of this passage. Be convicted. Make sure that you do not walk away from this feeling the kind of pride that Nicodemus can have in who he is. But oh my goodness. Walk away from this knowing that Jesus fully intended to give grace and to save the dead and the weak from their sins. The work is all of Christ. If He starts it, He'll finish it. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for this, just such a a, a reassuring picture of the Gospel. You are the one who saves. Lord, protect us from pride Protect us, Lord, from the temptation to think that we in and of ourselves are worthy to be in your presence, Lord. We do need to be broken. And Lord, I pray if there's somebody listening to this right now, I pray that you would break them. I pray, Lord, that you would cause them to be born again. That, Lord, you would give them new life. That the old man in them would die. 
Lord, we thank you for just these many pictures that you give us, the pictures of new birth, Lord, the picture of the temple being destroyed and raised again, the picture of baptism that we enjoyed, uh, Lord, realizing that Christ had to come and he had to die on the cross in order to make the way for us to be born again. In order for us to be cleansed, our sin had to be punished and that he took the punishment we deserve. Lord, we thank you that we have a sure way of entering into the kingdom. And Lord, I pray that you are working and that everyone who is listening to this would come to Christ, that you would, you would make them born again. Lord, I pray that they would be broken over their sin, they would confess it, they would turn from it, they would repent of it, that the Spirit would move in their heart, waking them up, opening their eyes to see the truth of Scripture, opening their hearts to feel the conviction of their sin, opening, Lord, their hearts to see the grace that You offer, and that they would be able to taste of it and see Your goodness. Would You, Lord, do that so that we may all feast together in Your house in the kingdom? And we pray this in Christ's name, Lord. Amen.